0: Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 1st of March with me Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I caught up with Neil Wilkins, head of the Migrant Workers Programme at the Institute for Human Rights and Business. We talked about some of the ongoing challenges around responsible recruitment, including worker fees, and the state of businesses' impact on human rights more generally. It's worth a listen. First though, is some sustainable business news with B. Stevenson.
1: A recent analysis by NGO Global Canopy reveals that despite a decade of warnings, over half of the world's largest financiers, including major players like BlackRock, Vanguard and Macquarie, have no public policies or pledges regarding deforestation. Global Canopy's Forest 500 report evaluates the actions of 350 companies in forest risk industries and their 150 major financiers each year. The report criticizes 30 finance firms and 39 other companies as continual laggards who are willfully ignoring deforestation risks. Notably, only 15% of financial firms with deforestation commitments ensure comprehensive coverage across all forest risk commodities. Leading this aspect are firms like Schroder's, Ramabank and BNP Paribas. Despite some progress, including a decrease in finance firms without deforestation commitments from 89% in 2014 to 55% in 2024, concerns persist about a forest blind spot. Global Canopy emphasises the need for regulation to address these persistent challenges, highlighting the EU's deforestation regulation as a significant step towards combating deforestation. RenewCell, the Swedish textile-to-textile recycling company, famous for its Circulose fiber and supported by the fashion giant H&M, has declared bankruptcy, citing financial constraints. Despite endeavors to secure funding, discussions with major shareholders, lenders and potential investors have fallen short in providing necessary capital for its continued operations. Circulose, the company's pioneering product, is renowned for its sustainable approach to recycling cotton waste into high-quality textile pulp. The news highlights the hurdles faced by sustainable innovators in the fashion industry, as science-backed solutions struggle to become profitable, emphasising the crucial role of financial backing in fostering environmental advancements within the sector. As many commentators had feared would happen again, the European Union countries have blocked the passage of the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which would require large companies to check their supply chains for forced labour or environmental damage, due to opposition primarily led by Germany's Free Democrats. Failing to receive a qualified majority of 15 out of 27 EU countries, the new rules have failed to reach a final vote in the European Parliament, where approval from lawmakers was expected. Despite Belgium's attempts to secure backing, concerns from member states, particularly Germany, have stalled the process. Without resolution, the law could be delayed until after the EU Parliament election in June. Under the proposed CS3D, large EU companies would need to address forced labour, child labour and environmental damage in their supply chains. This setback will undoubtedly be met with confusion among businesses, awaiting definitive legislation to level the playing field around human rights due diligence. Despite weeks of intense protests from farmers and opposition from right-wing parties, the European Parliament has approved a watered-down version of a nature restoration law proposed initially by the EC in 2022. The law, a crucial element of the EU's Green Deal, aims to restore at least 20% of the EU's land and sea by the end of the decade, with the goal of covering all ecosystems in need of restoration by 2050. While some lawmakers, including those from the centre-right European People Party, express concerns about further burdens on farmers, others have held the law as a step towards ensuring a habitable environment for current and future generations. The vote, which passed with 329 lawmakers in favour and 275 opposed, comes amid escalating concerns about the rapid decline of nature, with 81% of Europe's natural habitats classed as being in poor health. The policy will now need final approval from the EU countries before it enters into force.
0: Next up is a conversation I had a few years ago with Neil Wilkins, head of the Migrant Workers Programme at the Institute for Human Rights and Business. How do you characterise businesses' human rights impacts at the moment? Is, is there an, an improving picture?
2: I think it's an interesting picture. There's definitely a growing maturity to the world of business and human rights. And I think in many major companies, the days when human rights were something bolted on to an already bolted on sustainability department are over. Better companies now see human rights as a more integral part of their business. And there's more general expectation from their staff, customers, investors and so on that that should be so. Also, of course, we're starting to see more requirements from government. Those requirements are becoming much more action-oriented. Rather than simple reporting, companies are expected to be able to show what it is that they're doing and have results to back up the claims that they're making. The other unmissable driver of change, of course, is the climate crisis. It's vital that the business and human rights agenda fights its corner within the inevitable changes that we're going to see. I think that maybe we can hope that the necessary adjustments that are being made for climate may become an opportunity for a reset of how we should have been managing business and human rights anyway.
0: You're absolutely right and in fact uh, many people do talk about climate crisis being in fact the principal human rights issue as well because clearly displacement of peoples is going to be a significant problem and others. We've spoken a number of times about the human rights risks at the point of recruitment. Can you give me an update as to A, what those principally are and B, how they're changing?
2: Yeah, this is the thing that we're most known for perhaps. When IHRB first started a programme on migrant workers, we looked at all the challenges faced by migrant workers at all parts of a typical migration cycle and the responses to it. And there was actually a lot of information out there, but it was all very siloed. A bit here, a bit there. What we tried to do was to draw all those different strands, these challenges and solutions together and package them in a way that made them easier for business to understand and take action. And it was that work that led to the development of the Dakar Principles for Migration with Dignity, which I hope many of your listeners are familiar with. The DACA principles are actually now over 10 years old, which shows how long we've been banging away on this. But they're still used by business, civil society and governments as a framework for understanding the many challenges that migrant workers face and actually those who recruit and employ them, of course. However, if you look at them, we have principle number one right at the start of the cycle, and that's that no recruitment fees should be paid by workers. It is this common practice of paying recruitment fees to secure employment that loads debt and attendant sort of vulnerability onto migrant workers right at the start of the migration cycle. And this impacts their ability to assert their rights at all other stages of that cycle. And that's why. We've always felt that it's really important to have such a focus on this key issue of migrant worker recruitment, and particularly on the payment of recruitment fees. And that's why we spend a lot of time promoting the opposite of that, which is the employer pays principle, that no worker should pay for a job. The cost of recruitment should be borne not by the worker, but by the employer. You know, recruitment is a business cost and it needs to be paid by business.
0: Absolutely. IHRB has a responsible recruitment register how is it set up and what's it trying to do?
2: In 2016, I actually convened a group of larger companies into a coalition that we called the Leadership Group for Responsible Recruitment. And that group was founded around a simple premise, the employer pays principle that no worker should pay for a job. And we started with five companies making that commitment. And thanks to the efforts of ourselves, but also many, many other organisations who are working on this agenda, the issue of recruitment and recruitment fees has remained a hot topic for business. And it's often been folded into companies' work to prevent modern slavery. Gradually, other companies began to make very similar commitments to prohibit fees in their direct operations and extended supply chains. And the number of companies who are making this commitment started to really grow. And we wanted to chart this. So in 2022, we launched the Responsible Recruitment Register, which really is a simple list of companies who have a publicly available policy. That prohibits fees to workers and there are currently over 200 companies now featured on the register who all have that policy commitment that workers shouldn't be paying fees in their operations of course we all know that there's often a very big leap between policy and practice we have no true knowledge of the impact of any company's successful implementation of a policy But we do hope that the register itself increases transparency and helps to hold companies a little more accountable for those commitments on recruitment that they're making.
0: To what extent do you think that recruitment fees have become normalised?
2: Very normalised. I think over the years they have indeed become deeply embedded to the point that we've often seen and it's often been reported that workers may actually be suspicious of any offer where they do not have to pay a recruitment fee. And you can see the logic. I mean, if you come from a society where you pay for absolutely everything, why would this be any different? I do think, however, that things are changing slowly. Companies are beginning to pressure their suppliers on recruitment practices. Workers are beginning to realise that there are options out there where they don't have to pay fees, options that they can trust. And the recruitment agencies, too, are starting perhaps not from an ethical point of view, but maybe spot the market opportunity as well. We recently organized a stakeholder meeting in Malaysia, which was attended by over 100 recruitment agencies from Nepal, 100, all of whom were very happy to promise us anything that we wanted to hear. Now, we know that the majority of them won't be able to deliver. They don't have the inclination, and nor do they actually have the capacity to do it. But I think what we are, however, starting to see is the emergence of a few larger agencies who really start to get this now and are prepared to deliver on their promises and have the resources to do so. There's a few larger recruitment agencies in Nepal who are really starting to move forward on this. Some of these are also going through the IOM IRIS certification process where they will end up as certified recruiters under that scheme. I sit on the board of IRS, and it has been painfully slow to get to this point, I'm afraid. However, this year, we are very hopeful to see some recruiters, blue-collar recruiters, starting to get full certification, and that will make a significant difference. What we are hearing constantly, however, is companies telling us that they're committing to the employer pays principle, but can't find agencies to deliver it. Whilst the recruitment agents are telling us that they're prepared to offer the employer pays model of recruitment, but they can't find customers. So there's clearly a disconnect here. To address this, this is one of the reasons that we're working on the responsible recruitment register, but we're also trying to build a new register that will feature recruitment agencies. Now, this won't have the assurance of full certification, but we have realized, and this is why we're clean to work with others, that we need to help pump prime change and help agencies who are willing to make the transition. We can't let the best be the enemy of the good. We'll be putting agencies that we think will work to an employer pays model for companies, and we'll see how that could work through. The other key thing that I think that we need to talk about when we're talking about recruitment fees and where we are at the moment is around repayment. Repayment of recruitment fees, which of course is welcome, has become much, much more common companies are realising that reimbursement of workers is part of a policy of being a better company and moving forward on the issue of recruitment fees. And we've seen the great principles for repayment that were developed by the organisation Impact on this. They did great work on this. And I don't think that anyone will beat the guidance that Impact have put out there. So repayment is a very important part of this. However, what we don't want is for repayment to become normalised as well. So that a situation develops where workers are expected to pay the recruitment fee in the first instance and then claim back effectively. It needs to be paid by the employer very much in the first instance. We're glad to see repayment being made, but we don't want that to become the dominant business model around this space.
0: There are some human rights risks in this year that are specific to women. What are those in particular and how is the situation changing?
2: We're very aware that women migrant workers face particular disadvantage. I mean, just to give you some context, there's 70 million women migrant workers in the world. These workers suffer what is often called triple disadvantage because they're migrant. They're very often in low wage occupations and they're women. Many of them are also in formal employment situations with large numbers being employed as domestic workers, which means that sometimes their civil rights and labour rights aren't respected in the way that we would hope. Of course, women are vulnerable to a range of additional exploitations and abuses than men workers very often are. And actually, it's something we've been looking at within our migrant workers programme, and we wanted to try to better include the experiences and challenges faced by women migrant workers. And the obvious starting point was to undertake a gender review of the implementation guidance for the DACA Principles. And so working with a women's rights researcher, we found many places where we've amended the text or made additions to be much more inclusive of women's experience. We've also just recently, we produced a short research report for businesses outlining the particular challenges that women migrant workers face during recruitment. Now, this produced some findings that one might expect women's additional vulnerability to exploitation and harassment, and of course, some very gendered pathways and opportunities into employment. There's also just when you expect governments to be supporting the rights of women, actually, many governments have this idea of protecting women rather than protecting the rights of women. So you'll see bans on women travelling for employment abroad and that sort of thing, or bans of women entering particular sectors. Most of which are totally ineffective and, if anything, make women more vulnerable because the majority of bands only see women travelling informally and ending up in irregular situations, which makes their vulnerability to exploitation far worse. And the other thing that we really noticed during the research was a lack of reference, actually, to the challenges that women migrant workers face in many existing conventions, standards and guidance. In some ways, it's very similar to what we found when we started working on migrant workers. There was always this assumption that these standards, companies, you know, codes of conduct and things like that would apply equally to all workers. But very often, they either weren't being applied to migrant workers or there were additional challenges that migrant workers were facing. Now then, women migrant workers face additional challenges even further than that. And so having standalone policies for women migrant workers actually is a very useful thing, we feel, for companies to try to be looking at. The other thing that is sort of noticeable in this space, I think, is, and we often talk about human rights, but perhaps we don't talk enough about human resources And when we see how companies maybe in the West operate with well-staffed, well-resourced human resources departments, and this is something that, of course, we often see sadly lacking in some of the countries and places where we're talking to. There are many reasons for that, and it's not necessarily suppliers' faults. Sometimes more attention being paid to human resources might actually help improve situations. We'll be releasing these reports in early March, and we hope that that's the start of more work that we'll be building out from there over the coming months.
0: And once those reports are released, we'll we'll put a link into the podcast description. Neil, looking forwards then, what are you hoping to see in the coming months? There's obviously a lot going on in this area, a lot of progress as we've been discussing, but still huge challenges.
2: I do think the Responsible Recruitment Register is worth keeping an eye on. It started as a small side project and it's really moved to the centre of our programme on recruitment. We're going to be reviewing a further 1,000 companies. And so we do hope to see many additions. We are also going to be undertaking an advocacy campaign, writing to every single company that we review. The idea being that the more companies that note the inclusion of their peers and competitors on the register, the more they're likely to develop their own policies, or if they've already got policies, to note that those existing policies are being noticed and that they'll face more additional scrutiny on how they're implementing those policies. I think that that's important. I think that the register as well for recruitment agencies is really significant. This is the thing that companies have been asking us for. This is the thing that civil society have been calling for. If we can make the connections between recruitment agencies who want to do the right thing and suppliers and brands who want to do the right thing, we'll start to really move this forward. And I think we finally got everyone onto the same page around this. The register for recruitment agencies won't be easy. We know that we'll face criticism for some of the things that happen around it, but we do feel that it needs to happen that it will start to really help pump prime a change. And then the other thing that we're looking forward to, but we've got the Institute of Human Rights and Business, our global forum for responsible recruitment, which for the first time ever is taking place in London. And that's on the 25th, 26th of June. Once more, it will be a hybrid event. There'll be an in-person element and it will be online as well. Everything recorded. And we're going to be partnering with AIM Progress and Stronger Together for that two great organisations who really know this agenda as well. There'll be more details on the IHRB website on that in a couple of months.
0: Other events are available, of course. Neil, thank you very much indeed. And yes, good luck with all that. it will be interesting to see what progress is made in this area across the next few months. Neil Wilkins from IHRB, thanks very much indeed.
2: Thanks very much for having me in.
0: The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews and all the details about our upcoming Spring Conference series and how to join us. We'll be back with the weekly briefing on Monday, but that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.